This is Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. This is Stanley Fritz, and I'm happy to be back for another action-packed episode of Be Heard Talk, where we talk about social justice, politics, hip-hop, and why we need to defund and eventually abolish the police. If you want to be my friends, you can follow me on Twitter at Stan Fritz. Why isn't my, my, my camera on? Look at that. You can follow me on Twitter. Look, look at my beautiful face. Look at my beautiful shirt. Respect me, Selena. You can follow me on Twitter at Stan Fritz. You can find me on IG at Stan Fritz. You can follow me on Snapchat at Darkskin Swindle, but I never use it. And I made a TikTok, but they blocked Black Lives Matter, so I blocked them. So that's where we can talk. Don't make that face, Selena. You hating. No, I'm not. Um, welcome, everyone, to Be Heard Talk. Of course, this is the show where we talk race, politics, and culture. We do that all from our unfiltered, unapologetic perspectives. My name is Selena Hill. Super happy to be here. You can follow me at Miss Selena Hill. And Miss is spelled with an MS, of course. So look me up there. Um, and I think you guys will be very entertained if you check out my IG stories for the most part. <laughs> so definitely check me out there. Um, Tiffany, how's it going? Yes, I'm Tiffany. You guys can follow me at Tiffany. Just Tiffany. No, no last name. <laughs> no, no last name. <laughs> Tiffany Brown. I feel like my name was pretty, like, racially ambiguous. You never quite know what you're going to get with a Tiffany Brown. <laughs> but um, you can follow me on uh, Instagram and Twitter at TiffLizB. My name is right underneath my face on Zoom. And I'm really excited for the show and dive into stuff. No, absolutely. We actually have a very special guest who we'll introduce in a bit. Uh, but before we do that and, and actually have a full conversation about the Black freedom struggle and how it has evolved into what we know as Black Lives Matter today, we should kick off the news roundup and talk about some of the news stories that made us laugh, cry, infuriated, possibly get canceled, possibly get blocked on Twitter or Facebook, which happens to Stanley pretty often. I haven't um, in like three weeks. Don't do that. Exactly. Um, well, but yes, Stanley, did you want to kick off the news roundup? Yes, yes, yes. It is definitely time for the news roundup. And we got a lot of good things to talk about this week. Listen, the world sucks. Everything is hard. People are <laughs> racist. But Juneteenth, the first ever Juneteenth happened yesterday, guys. Well, not yesterday, Friday, June 19th. And as we know, Juneteenth is there to signify the day that the last slaves found out that they were free. It's when the union army was able to get all the way to texas and be like hey y'all this ain't a thing no more you can go about your business and folks have been celebrating it particularly in the south especially in texas for quite some time but it, it has now risen to a national conversation and it's being considered as a national holiday i know in new york we're considering making it a statewide holiday i know i had a juneteenth weekend that was pretty good and i'm pretty excited about it what did you guys do this juneteenth weekend well, since you asked, my Juneteenth was super lit. Um, I started off at Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem, and basically we heard from an array of activists, organizers, and just really talented people. People like this one man, he played um, A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Hook on a harmonica, which was really, was like very peaceful and very impactful. Um, we did, and my other friend performed too, OnStar. He did like a, he just freestyled for like five straight minutes and anybody who raps knows that is not easy to do. Um, yeah, so it was just like good vibes. And then we head down to Prospect Park where we were amongst a coalition, a very broad coalition of folks. Um, there was actually like drummers there. So like I had got in the middle and I started dancing and stuff like that because I just couldn't resist. And then we, and then I met up with Evan who is one of the correspondents here on Be Heard Talk, and he had some friends, and then I played Double Dutch, and then we went out to eat, like, all of us. And, like, it was, it was, like, it was such a great day because... Wait a minute, wait a what? You with a white man on Juneteenth, Selena Hill? <laughs> Didn't you get the Negro notes? We weren't doing that on Friday. No, Evan is 100% sold down. He's an ally. Like, he even offered to like send like money and stuff like that. Like he was like supporting and like there for solidarity. So we had a great time. And Evan is also one of Stanley's really good friends too. So. Shout out to all the whites that sent me money on Juneteenth. How, how many people did you get money from? Um, I made a hundred dollars. <laughs> Can I just say something that there's this influencer and media correspondent, Kayla Walker, who I, I follow and I adore. Yes. She posted, she ranted for like super long because yep. she was offended that a former colleague of her sent her $18 and 65 cents on Juneteenth. 
and she like she was like she was so offended but i left a comment under her post and i was like i feel you sis but a lot of allies are sending black people money as an act of solidarity oh no white so, send me the coins please i am not offended <laughs> reparations tip what'd you do for juneteenth I feel like she could at least send her $20. Like, I got why, but it's like, sis, really? So for Juneteenth, I um, went to the beach. I had a Black Girl Beach Day. Um, we went to Jones Beach. I was kind of intentional. I really wanted to be around Black people and Black women, especially because I felt like Black women had a tough week, and I'm sure we're going to get into it. Yep. So I wanted to be intentional about that. So we went to Jones Beach and we got food after. And it was like a lot of like love and camaraderie and just like laughing and jokes. And also social distancing because we're at the beach because <laughs> Rona is still out there. <laughs> um, and yesterday I had a, like a Juneteenth barbecue with like my immediate family. And that was really special because my nephews, they live in uh, Pennsylvania and they, they haven't really been to like a march or a protest. So... I had them make signs and we literally marched around my block and I had like a bullhorn and I was chanting Black Lives Matter, uh, Matters and Queens. And I'm sure my neighbors loved it because they was like, what is happening right now? Yeah. So it was like a really, I felt like this weekend was like full of like black joy and like recharging. So I feel like a lot of us, like we're, we're in the streets, we even work in the movement. And I feel like a lot of times we might feel guilty about having some joy. And I know I struggle with that this weekend. Yeah. But I was like, you know, I'm going to be intentional because I can't just be out in the street all the time ranting and raving. Like, I have to uh, replenish myself. So. Exactly. Love yourself, beloved. Come on, you the queen with the good pension. Yeah, <laughs> here you go. <laughs> Save some of that for me, all right? Yes, I got you. I got you. Um, Professor Powers, because I don't have the, the, the strength to call you just Nick. That feels weird to me still 10 years <laughs> later. What did you do to Juneteenth? Okay, here, I'll start my video so you can see me. All right. So I had a good time. I mean... I did everything like mundane, like I had a, a good ritual. So hopefully the video will kick in in a second. Um, and so I just kind of lit a candle. I meditated. I thought about the ancestors. Um, and, and that was like a nice kind of like a centering for myself. Then there was a good Juneteenth protest that actually marched across the bridge. And so I joined that for a bit. And hearing people's chants, it was just like the chants were like thundering against my body. And, you know, the, all those voices in unison kind of lift your consciousness up. It makes you feel more than just one person or one life. You feel like you're part of a larger movement or a big river in the street. And that was just amazing to me. So, you know, and just to go out there and see, like, it was multiracial. It was beautiful. And it felt like we weren't alone. So I felt like Juneteenth, the ancestors were, were like, cheering us on. I could almost see them, like, not literally. Like, I'm not, like, hallucinogenic. But, like, I, I could feel the ancestors, like, cheering us on from like the sides of the street saying, you know, finally you're doing what we always wanted to do. I love it. Thank you so much for that. So folks, I want to move us slightly away from Juneteenth to talk about some other things that happened this week, because we did have a couple of spicy moments this year on this Juneteenth, on this Juneteenth week. And one of those spicy moments came from no, none other than Gerard J. Cole, who after I guess seeing a tweet by um, rapper and activist No Name felt that it was necessary to address her directly and talk to her about the way she made him feel. And he did so in a song called Snow in the Bluff. Now, for those of you who don't know, Snow in the Bluff is J. Cole's new song. And people like me who are J. Cole stands are very excited to hear it, only to be surprised about the actual content in the song. And I can just tell you one thing. People were not very happy with the content of the song. I'll play some of it right now so you guys know what I'm talking about. All right, let's turn this down before YouTube locks us. But um, yeah, guys, so that's just a snippet of the song. It's, it's three minutes long. I played about a minute of it. So I want to hear your thoughts. A lot of folks were upset with J. Cole. They thought that he was some policing no name. They thought that what he did was very disrespectful. They thought that, um, that he, like, of all the things he could have been rapping about right now, going after this woman no name was the least of it. So what are your thoughts? I know we got some folks on Facebook Live. It's still good to see you. My big sister Florentine's on here. Molly, what do you guys think about that J. Cole song? Let's start with Tiffany because she seems to have lots of emotions as we were talking about it. Yes, I gave it a thumbs down um, while it was playing. Um, I feel like J. Cole, I thought um, he should have read The Room. I think that's my biggest critique of the song. Put out whatever song you want to put out, but like I alluded to earlier, I feel like Black women were having a tough week with different videos of these 
of different videos that we saw of black women being disrespected, the young protester that was like tragically killed. And for him to put out this song against no name, who is a woman that has been dragged on Twitter before for her name. I think her name was previously no name gypsy. And people talk to her about how gypsy could be seen as like possibly like a racial slur or just like a derogatory term to use. And she was like, okay, I'm going to drop that from my name. And they called her out last year, which is why she started the book club about like black liberation and freedom. So I feel like you have this woman who is doing the work and that you have J. Cole who can just get on a track and say, yeah, I don't read my college degree from St. John's doesn't really mean anything, but I'm going to critique this woman because she wasn't nice to me. She didn't coddle me. And I really have like a lot of issues with that because I feel like oftentimes black women, we have to do the work. We get called to the carpet and we try to reevaluate and move forward where black men, they could just pretty much state the issue and say like, I'm still going to just rap. I'm not going to read a book. So I'm not going to change what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep rapping and be ignorant essentially. Well, before we get, I want to go to Selena next, but before we do, I want to shout out the folks who are watching on um, Zoom live and on Facebook live. Um, Aiden, um, BP, Melissa, Molly, Rashida, all you guys who are on Zoom Live, thank you so much. Selena, you and I talked about this a little bit in the group chat, because I told you I wasn't going to comment because I didn't want to get canceled with J. Cole. What, what, do you still feel the same way as you did then? Like, now you've had a couple of days to think about it? Well, and I'm really interested to hear your comments, too, Stanley, because we know you are a hip-hop historian. Said, whatever Angela Davis said, I'm with her on this. No, I'm going to go. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to share, but I definitely want to hear what you have to say as a hip-hop historian and a huge J. Cole fan. Number one, I appreciate Tiffany's assessment because I do think that a lot of people felt very taken off guard, like No Name said, it, out of everything to rap about, why do you feel so upset and bothered by the tone I use um, when I'm expressing frustration with systemic racism, white people, and even like sexism within my own, you know, culture and community. However, I appreciate the song. And the reason why is because I appreciate J. Cole's vulnerability. For him to say, like he starts off where like, I'm not that smart. I know, like, I'm all for Black empowerment, but I'm not an activist. I'm not an organizer. And he even says, I'm not a leader. And he kind of, his, his stance, in my opinion, was, no name. You know this because you're, you've read and you educated, and I'm learning from you, but it feels like you're talking down to me. And the, <laughs> Tiffany rolled her eyes. But the, the, reason, the reason why I felt him say that was because I've said on this show a number of times, it's up to white people to educate their own communities. And I feel like within our own circles and communities, like I've, I've taken on the role to talk to people in my family and, and those who may not be as educated on the issues. And I feel like if we do want to advance as a people in a community, we have to share and circulate this knowledge. Now, of course, No Name has because she has a book club. But I do think that like he, it kind of sounded like she comes across as elitist and she comes, she comes across as, I don't want to say like, like, like very intellectually, I don't want to say snob, but like he, J. Cole didn't feel included. J. Cole didn't feel like I can ask no name, like, hey, sis, what, 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 do, you mean, what do you mean by Black Trans Lives Matter? What do you mean, what, how should I, how, what does it mean to misidentify someone, misgender identify someone? It didn't sound like he felt included in, the, in that space. And to me, that concerns me. Well, I got to be problematic for a little bit. Tiffany, I might need you to snuff me after this. So I didn't have the full story. I heard this Snow in the Bluff song, right? So I didn't have the context for it. And I was like, oh, this is a nice song. And then I went to Twitter where I live, and it was like, Jay calls him a misogynist, and he should die. And I was like, what? And then to come to find out, they said that they thought he was alluding to um, no, no Name. I didn't know why he was alluding to her. So then... I went back to her Twitter page and apparently, you know, she had said something like all these artists who have so much to say when it's time to sell their albums, but now they're quiet as a mouse now. And apparently that was the thing that set J. Cole off. My general thinking on things is don't start smoke if you don't want the smoke back. So like, I think J. Cole's timing was, was like, was dumb as hell. I think he shouldn't have said that. But at the same time, like she, she shot and he shot back. Like it, that's rap. And then also, I also think that, like, he has a larger point that gets missed because he picked the wrong time to do it. 
This is not the time to come out here tone policing people or talking about teach me, especially with everything happening to black women that we're seeing happening on a national scale and everything that always happens to black women. But the larger point is like, yo, there's a lot of people who don't understand this stuff and you do have to have patience with them. If I didn't have people who had patience with me when I was a, a right-leaning centrist back in 2010, 2011, I would, I would have never changed. I'd be worse now. I wouldn't be here where some things are more radical. I wouldn't. But it took people having patience with me. And me, I know who, like, I read a thousand different books and I think I know everything in the world. I know how hard it can be for people to deal with me because I can, be, I, can come off, I can come off as snobbish or as leader sometimes as well. And I had to take a step back because you don't build power by knowing all the things, but not helping people see their own power and learn as well. So like, I've tried to take a step back. And I think that message is important. I also think that people were dragged, like they were dragging it. It was, he shouldn't have put it out, but they were really dragging it. J. Cole hates black women, really? Relax. Just to, if I could add something there, is that this reminds me of something that uh, Elaine Brown, who was the former leader of the Black Panthers in the 70s, said in a class in like, I think 2004 or five, she, she visited a class. And someone in the class said, you know, in the Black Panther Party, wasn't there like a lot of sexism? And she said, yes, there was. She's like, but, you know, who do you think we're working with? We're, we're dealing with brothers and sisters who've been in poverty and on the street. We didn't get the men and the women from like revolutionary heaven, fully formed, you know, revolutionaries. They had to go through a process of education, an emotional education, as well as an intellectual one. And that was hard work for everyone. It was hard work for us who had already kind of advanced. And it was hard work for them because they had to be humble and like be open. So this, this debate here is something that's been happening over and over again in history as people are at different places in the stages of revolutionary education. And there has to be like a lot of patience on both sides. Yeah, that's 100%. Thank you so much for that, Professor Powers. So I do want to move us on to another song that seems to have the zenith of the moment. Um, I'm sure that Selena probably hasn't heard this song because she's being a productive human being. But I, who have nothing else to do on the weekends but to be problematic and listen to good music, know that the City Girls have a new album out. And the City Girls have a new hit out, too, that you guys should hear. All right, guys, that's the new City Girls album. That's their hit, Broke Negroes. And apparently they don't deserve anything. So during my social distance barbecue, we had a huge debate about this in which I said that they were wrong because I am broke and I have a queen of eight years. What do you guys think about the City Girls' new album? Um, so Stanley's right. I have not heard the whole album, but I did hear some of those bits and pieces of that song. I thought, I thought the song was a hit. I was very, I don't, I'm not sure which city girl was rapping and being, she was, I appreciated her being so vulnerable. Like she talked about how, you know, she's using her money to get work done on her body and stuff. And I was just like, you know, sis is keeping it real. She's like, I need you to fix my teeth too. And if you don't have, you know, the money to <laughs> afford my luxury lifestyle and whatever it is I need done, whatever cosmetic surgery that she wants, A sexist. and you don't meet her standards. I don't. Well, you know what? She kept it real. What about people who are money resistant? Like you can't make, like, like I can't make money. That means I don't deserve Jatavia's love, Selena. Is that what? Yeah, she said she has to stand. Look, I said, and I'm going to just wrap up here, because I said the same thing when Sweetie talked about the type of man she wants, like her type. Mm -hmm. That is her prerogative. If she wants someone who makes whatever amount of money to do it, to support her lifestyle, all power to her. If you if you may have been having a J. Cole moment where your insecurities are getting the best of you, Stanley, maybe that's what it is. <laughs> oh, all right, all okay? right. Tiffany, Tiffany, let's just move away from Selena who's hating and go to Tiffany. Um, I feel like preferences, essentially that's what she's saying, her preference in men. I feel like that can be a slippery slope. So I do think we need to like be cognizant of that. It could be dangerous because then you could have like, Black men, but, like, I only date light-skinned women or white women because dark-skinned women are ugly. Those are two different things. No, but I'm just talking about, like, preferences. Right, right, I right. just want, like, you have, to, you have to, like, understand, like, what your preferences are, like, rooted in as right, well. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, I'm not opposed to the city girls, you know, scamming and robbing men. More power to them. I mean, they're also <laughs> making it clear. I feel like a lot of times, like, these, these IG models or these girls who have, like, reconfigured their whole body, they get a lot of hate, but I'm like, but if you notice, like, the same sort of guy always gravitates towards them. They're always getting the baller. They're always getting the rapper or the person who has, like, tons of money because essentially there's, there's guys out there that 
like that. Enjoy that. And they know that. And they say, if you want to be in my presence, if you want to have me on your arm, because you know I look pretty, you need to maintain my teeth, my shoes. <laughs> I need a Birkin bag. I need all of that. And I feel like, you know, more women need to be more forthcoming in their wants and needs and desires from the opposite sex. Or maybe the same sex. However they may go, they just need to be upfront about their standards. <laughs> Professor Powers, have you heard of the City Girls before? No, but it, it reminds me a lot of Scrubs from TLC, uh, Pay My Telephone Bills from Destiny's Child. Like, there's a long tradition of sisters calling up brothers saying, you know, are you going to step up and be able to, like, help me afford this lifestyle? And just as, like, an artistic principle, I think expressing your truth, even if it's messy or materialistic or immoral or hyper-self-righteous, whatever it is, you, art demands that you express it because the first, the first step in, in having integrity is at least expressing honestly what you really think and feel. And then if you get criticism from it, then that criticism can maybe help you self-reflect. But you can't even get to the self-reflection if you're not honest about your messy inside mindset. So, you know, I think it's healthy because if you start censoring stuff from a, self, a social justice viewpoint, that means you are going to totally miss out on much needed information on what people really think and feel. And that your sense of reality is gonna be so skewed that God forbid you ever take power. So I think let the city girls put out as many ratchet ass albums as they can. And then hopefully along the way, maybe they'll evolve a little bit like, um, like TLC evolved and Salt and Pepper went from like uh, push it to like, you know, feminist anthems when they were older. I think it's just part of a progression. Even Snoop Dogg went from like, you know, killing cops on deep cover to like being Snoop Lion and doing like Rasta anthems of the diaspora. Like people change over time. Give them time to change. Yeah. Can I just commend Nick for like that beautiful and eloquent way? I don't, <laughs> I don't, that. I don't, don't even know what that was. Huh? He's saying smart, thoughtful things about about my hood rat loves. He he made this. He made so much sense with that. I don't like that. That made too much sense. I was too smart. It <laughs> <You> uh, was. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a brilliant break. So, Bill Stanley. <laughs> so, folks, we do have to shift gears just a little bit to go towards something a little bit. Well, you know, there's no better. Way, there's no way to put this nicely. Like we gotta, you know, just get to something that's a little bit sadder than what we like to talk about right now. But um, as a lot of folks know, activist Olowatuyen Salu was was murdered um, a couple of days ago. The police found her body. They've also found the killer. I don't want to go into too deep detail, but I do want to give um, just like a trigger warning to those who've been victims of sexual assault. Um, the person who is admitting to have killing her and another woman held her captive for three to five days, um, assaulted her multiple times before he eventually killed her. He's admitting to it. They have him detained now with no bail. Um, so, you know, rest in peace to the sister who, you know, she, she had been all over the protests and she had tweeted out that, you know, she had been assaulted. And, now, and, and she said it was by a black man. And she said she was trying to get away. And that was the last tweet we had heard from her. So now that we know that they have found her killer, they have found her body, and may she rest in power. Um, I don't, this is like a tough story. This is part of the reason why so many people have just been on edge and like have had charge of promotion. So I want to hold some space now for any folks who want to just like share their thoughts on this. Selena? Um, yeah, so I first heard about this, uh, unfortunately, after, you know, she went missing, and then she was found. And I think it just goes to show how much, like, support Black women don't feel like we have, and how unsafe we feel. Like, she was, the killer was an omitted Black man, who I believe was part of the church clergy. And no, no he was, because he met her. Didn't he pick her up at a church? No, they met at a bus stop. Okay. Um, let her come to his house and take a take a bath and get some rest. And then he, you know, he tried to have sex with her. She rejected it. And then that's when things took a turn for the left. Right. And he also killed another activist too, an older woman who was white. But yeah, I just feel like, you know, when we say, you know, Black Lives Matter, I think a lot of times the movement is so male-centric and male-dominated that we forget that Black women and particularly Black trans women are the most marginalized and most vulnerable in this movement because, and we don't always feel protected. Like, I feel like Black women put their lives on the line for Black men all the time, but is that same, like, energy reciprocated? 
or like do we feel protected like put it like this when I walk through let's say if I'm in you know my neighborhood and I see like a group of guys or whatever sometimes I feel like I have to walk around them because I'm like I don't want them to you know approach me and sometimes they don't use like sometimes they'll be like you know they'll they'll try to like talk to me or like try to grab me or stuff like that and like I'm not like offended by it but I just feel like we're not teaching the guys in our community how to be more respectful towards like the women and you know if one of those guys were to die god forbid or be shot in my community I would be on the I would be at the protest like I would be on the front lines to protest for their lives but I don't feel like they always feel like they need to protect black women Tiffany mm. Um, so when I heard that of this story and that, you know, she was ultimately murdered, this was right after the other two videos that were circulating on the internet with the black woman getting thrown in the dumpster and another black woman from Harlem getting hit in the face with a skateboard. But I was like really, really upset. And Stanley, I don't know if you remember this, but it was like a similar like, um, group of events that happened and this black woman on Twitter had tweeted which I will state was very provocative. She was like, you know, the police are not killing you in words fast enough. It was like a similar story. And I was like, though this is a provocative statement, I can understand that sentiment of it because I feel like a lot of black women, we go out, we march, we chant, and we holler for black men. And black men can't even tell you more than two black women that have been killed by police. And then, like you said, we go into our communities and you almost feel like you have to... Um, put up like an armor to protect yourself. Like I remember when I first moved mm-hmm. out of that I wouldn't walk down a certain block because guys would just be huddled there and I didn't want to have to deal with the back and forth. Or sometimes we're told to when someone says good morning to us, you know, I'll say good morning back in a certain way so they could pick up that like I don't want to talk, but you know, I'm gonna keep walking. But I don't want you to, you know, call me out my name or even try to attack me because I ignored you. I think that is very much the reality of black women in the community so it's kind of like this tension that we have uh between black men and black women and like black trans people because i feel like you know patriarchy and misogyny just like seeps into how we operate in our lives and it was really frustrating talking about this with other like black men because you realize like how quickly black men turn into trump supporters when it comes about like this conversation because it's just like the same way we tell like white people to educate other white people, it's like black men quickly, you know, turn that on, like around and be like they don't they quickly don't understand what we're saying or like our viewpoint. So that's why I feel like you know they act like they're almost like Trump supporters when it when it comes to like the issue of misogyny and you know sexual assault. Because truth of the matter is, because we live in segregated communities. Oftentimes, Black women are, you know, attacked, especially domestic violence, are attacked by other Black men. So I feel like we have to, like, you know, reckon with that reality and try to, like, move forward, try to find some, like, common space and ground to grow. Professor Powers, do you have any input? Yeah. Oftentimes, I'll take a piece of chalk and on the corners where the brothers are hanging out and creating this kind of sexist gauntlet for women to walk through where they you know, uh, harass them or, you know, verbally kind of scare them. You know, I write in chalk, like, you know, respect sisters or, um, you know, the way that you treat uh, the sisters is the way that they'll treat children who grow up to be you. So in other words, that the cycle of violence, you know, if you put fear in these women's bodies and then eventually, you know, women who have children who have all this tension and stress may wind up taking it out, especially on their male children. And those male children are going to wind up growing up with all that stress and anger and fear and then take it. People who are angry and weak don't fight against those who are stronger. They find people who are weaker and their fury like water goes downhill. It follows the the kind of law of powerlessness and it goes to those who have less power and they attack them. That's a coward's way of releasing uh, toxicity from the body. You find someone who's weaker who can't fight back. It's a coward's path. And so, you know, so when I see that, I don't see strength. I see really cowardly and weak people. And, um, you know, it's a bully thing to do. So, you know, what I try to do is just go out there and just talk and, and also, you know, write in chalk and let, and let people know that, you know, that this is wrong and make it very loud. I think sometimes we have to protest just as much 
like uh, bad behavior in our own communities and clean house in our own neighborhoods, um, just as much as we're fighting against white supremacy on the, on the borders of our neighborhood. So, um, you know, and I think that's something that men specifically have to do because men are around men. You know, women aren't, you know, in the locker rooms. They're not on the basketball courts in general. They're not in the workout rooms with us. They're not in the places where men are with men. So we have to be the ones, um, you know, to put those ideas out uh, and to let other guys know just almost just on a practical level. You know, it's not about like flexing on other guys, you know, it's literally saying, hey, you know, you have to be strong enough to stop this bullying from going further because that's going to de- destroy our community's ability to fight back. Thank you so much for that. So guys, I mean, like, that's a heavy thing that to like to really talk about, but it's true. And, you know, the responsibility of dismantling patriarchy and sexism is not on women, it's on men, particularly black men. But the fact of the matter is the numbers actually do show the number two killer for black women between the ages of 15 and 31 is murder, homicide. And guess who are the people that are most likely to kill black women? Black men. That's, that's not a joke. That's not an exaggeration. That's actually a fact from the CDC. So we have a lot of work to do. But I don't want us to end the news roundup like this on this sad note because, listen, the world is hard, but there is some hope. So I want to share some really good news with you that came out earlier this week. So in a major rebuke to President Trump's U.S. Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court has blocked the administration's plan to dismantle the Deferred Action um, DACA program for young dreamers. So because of the Supreme Court and a 5-4 vote, DACA, DACA recipients will not lose their status and will be able to stay in the country. This is a huge decision because we all know that Donald Trump has pretty much stacked the Supreme Court with a bunch of former rapists and white supremacists. So the fact that they lost this case, the case that's very important to Trump, is a big deal. There's still a lot of fighting to do, but there's some hope in the air. Even one flicker of light is better than complete darkness, and that's our flicker of light for this week. So I want to leave us on that happy note to end off the news roundup and throw it to Selena. Thank you, Stanley. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so we'll actually switch gears and talk more about um, what is known as the Black Freedom Movement. So I think if, if we look at what's been happening, it was really like the killing of George Floyd by the hands of Minneapolis police on May 25th that reignited the Black Lives Matter movement and the demand to end police brutality and dismantle white supremacy. However, the fight for Black humanity and equality started long before we were even born. The Black freedom movement of the 20th century laid the groundwork for the fight for Black liberation that we're currently leading today by raising Black consciousness, economic empowerment, and and demanding the creation of political and cultural institutions for African-American people. According to the book, Keywords for African-American Studies, by Hassan Kwame Jeffries, the Black Freedom Movement is a distinct era that began in the mid-1940s with a surge in public protests and ended in the mid-1920s with a shift towards electoral politics. Now, the Black Freedom Movement encompasses two of the most unique and enduring periods of Black activism. The first is the Civil Rights Movement, which resulted in the elimination of Jim Crow laws and customs. And the second is the Black Power Movement, which expanded the gains of the Civil Rights Movement and also elevated African-American racial consciousness and defined what it meant to be Black. During this time, Black Power activists founded Black-owned bookstores, food cooperatives, farms, media, printing press, schools, clinics, and ambulance services. However, at the moment's peak in the early 1970s, several leaders were killed during conflicts with police and some activists began to actually lead the movement. So in today's episode of Be Her Talk, we're going, to, we're going to discuss the Black Power Movement and how it relates to Black Lives Matter and the ultimate fight for a liberation. So to help us with this conversation, I want to formally introduce Professor Nicholas Powers, who is the author of The Ground Below Zero, 9-11 to Burning Man, and the New Orleans to DeFore, Haiti to Occupy Wall Street, published by Upset Press. He is also an associate professor of English at SUNY Westbury, where both Stanley and I attended and met him mm-hmm. and took his classes, um, which were some of my favorite classes. And I think I actually got A's in both your classes, at least one of them. Um, but yeah, and that, that just goes to show to how great of a professor you were. And also, he also you can find his writing at Truth Out since 2011, and he reports a lot about police brutality. 
So I actually wanted to open this conversation with you, Nick, because um, if you could just give us more insight into the Black freedom, power, and this liberation movement, also let me know if I got everything right or, you know, what are your thoughts about it? Black love is the source of the Black freedom movement. And what I mean by that is what Black literature teaches us, and I'll just hold this book up quick, is from the earliest slave narratives, it was the love that Black people had for each other that drove us to acts of resistance and rebellion. So even in the first, like Frederick Douglass's narrative of a slave, uh, his mother kind of broke uh, the, the law of the plantation and walked miles in the middle of the night just so she could hold her child for a few minutes while he fell asleep. Uh, and Harriet Jacobs, also um, a slave, um, she uh, resisted by trying to keep her children safe from being sold off and actually hid in an attic for about six or seven years before finally escaping with her children to the north. So some of the earliest acts of defiance were driven by black love for family, for your children, for your parents. Um, so black love to me is even before any specific historical moment, it is the kind of universal origin of the black freedom movement. It's that we love each other and we love ourselves and we love our bodies. So I would say just to kind of put that out there first from literally, if you read uh, the classic slave narratives, you'll see that it's black love that starts almost all acts of resistance. Um, even uh, rebellions on slave ships, it was the desire to reconnect with the lost family that were still on the shores of Africa or the interior and wanting to you know, fight the slave traders to go back home. So black love is this incredible titanic force that constantly is breaking down the chains and the walls um, that keep people apart. Um, the second, I would say, is um, what to do with black trauma and black pain. Because when you're living within white supremacy, if you're living within a ghetto, if you're living within a segregated space, and you're constantly being patrolled by the police, or uh, they're going through the neighborhoods and basically farming people's bodies out to the, the you know, prison industrial complex, which is almost a replacement for slavery. And there's a constant stress, constant you know, pounding on, on you. What do you do with that trauma? And again, one of the most powerful things that literature teaches us, say in the autobiography of Malcolm X, is that it's actually not enough um, to experience pain. You need to be able to translate that pain through black historical memory into black consciousness. And black consciousness is when you realize that your life is deeply connected with the lives of black people who lived before and who are living side by side with you. And that the ancestors actually give us a blueprint or a map on how to understand and fight against white supremacy. And that's what happened with Malcolm X. You know, he was, you know, a, a drug user and a seller in Harlem and in Boston, I think it was Roxbury. Uh, he was steering black women's prostitution. Uh, you know, he was a thief and a robber, robber, uh, a thief, sorry, it's redundant. And eventually he went to jail, but it was only after he started reading black slave narratives and then eventually came into the contact with the Nation of Islam, however problematic that organization is. At least it was a vehicle for some modes of black consciousness. And it was that that helped him translate his pain as a drug addict into a liberation mindset. So, you know, one is that it's black love that forces us to even see in George Floyd ourselves. And when George Floyd is calling out for help and calling out for mama, it's like we see, you know, ourselves in him or our brothers or our uncles or our fathers, but also our aunts and our mothers and our sisters and our daughters. We see ourselves in him. And that's part of having black consciousness. And then you have to take the pain uh, that is created by white supremacy and translate it into a political, you know, vision to help you, to help guide you forth. So that's what the literature itself says. That's the emotional kind of dynamic. But in terms of historical overview of the black movement, that what the civil rights movement and what black uh, lives matter have in common is that they're both reformist movements. They're seeking to reform the state. They're not trying to overturn the state. They're not trying to replace the state with uh, a communist state or a socialist state or even a black supremacy. They're not trying to do that. None of that is in the actions or in the rhetoric. These are reformist movements that are seeking to change the laws to make it easier for black people to live in the United States in an integrated way. 
right? So this is not Pan-Africanism. This is not separatism. This is not the Garvey movement trying to create a civil, like a, a new state in Africa. This is not uh, the Nation of Islam trying to create separate black states in the South. You know, this is not separatism. This is an integrationist reformist movement that is in the tradition of the civil rights movement. And, you know, the last thing to be said also within the Black Panther movement. If you look at the Black Panthers 10-point program, none of that is about separatism. It's all about reforming the state to make it easier for Black people to live here. So Black Lives Matters is within a tradition of integrationist reformism that is trying to reform the United States to make it easier for us to live here. Thank you, Nick, for that historical analysis. I appreciate that. Um, Tiffany, in what ways do you think Black Lives Matter, the movement, um, resembles the Black freedom struggle that we saw in the 60s and 70s? Um, I would definitely say one of the ways that you really, I guess for me, that it resembles the movement of the 60s and 70s is, um, I'm sorry, I'm just losing my train of thought because I had so many thoughts after listening to the professor. Um, I would say one of the movements, it was definitely, I, I would say the way we see, um, I would say like the, the chapter breakdowns of the Black Lives Matter movement and how they are tackling the different laws and pushing for progressive laws and trying to have like an inside outside approach. So you have like the protests and all that, but you also have them attacking the system and trying to either have new laws or reform laws that were supposed to help us and like push us forward. Um, so I would say that for me, I would say that for me, that kind of resembles the Black Lives Matter movement compared to like the 60s and 70s. Um, I would also kind of say some people felt like the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s kind of trickled down to the most marginalized people. And I kind of can see that in the Black Lives Matter movement when in terms of when we're trying to like remember, like remember trans lives or we have to think about our most marginalized Black lives within Blackness or the Black people. So I kind of see like, you know, those shadows or like those, those mirror image between the two movements, yeah. Finley, what are your thoughts on what has already been said about the evolution of the Black freedom struggle and how it sort of manifests today within Black Lives Matter? I think Professor Powers hits the nail on the head with this. I think like his analysis is pretty spot on. One thing that I would, I, I wanna like think about though a little bit is I think there was a lot more space for cohesion or teamwork um, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, between I guess like the more left-leaning groups and some more of the establishment groups and um, particularly the civil rights fight. So like um, NAACP and SNCC and SCLC worked together a lot more. Wasn't as much the case with Black Panthers who um, didn't work with them as much, but like there, there seems to be a lot more cohesion and partnership. And in these days, and maybe I'm just like too deep in the soup to like see what's actually cooking anymore, but it feels like there's just like a lot of like, there's always tension with these groups, no matter what period you're talking about. But in this space, it feels like there's not just tension, is that there's no trust and there's no willingness or ability to work together. Um, if, I, if I could be fully transparent, somebody asked me if I was going to the March on Washington in August, and I was like, oh, cool, who's doing it? And then they said someone's name, who I won't say out loud, and I was like, oh, he's, he's organizing this? No, I'm not going. And the reason being is because, at least for me, and I'll speak for Stanley, who does this work and like is in some of these spaces, a lot of the establishment folks that like I encounter, just Stanley, they're it, it feels like they're carrying the water for neoliberals. It feels like they're carrying water for like special interests. And a lot of them, at least to me, a lot of them just don't feel like they're really about pushing the envelope on things anymore. So I know for myself and a lot of people that I work with, we kind of like have a lot of distance with them. We don't engage with them at all. When you see those folks in the room, you know nothing is happening. And I don't know if it was that divisive. Um, at the peak of the civil rights movement. Uh, Tiffany, I see you nodding your head. Before we move on, did you have any um, feedback on that? Do you see that too? Um, I can understand where Stanley's coming from, but I feel like I'm trying to soften my approach because I felt like, I think everyone plays a role in leading towards black liberation. And I think whatever message works for one group may not work for another group, and I'll use the example, I went to a rally outside of Barclays where Jumani Williams and uh, several other Black leaders were leading it, and they had um, Shan Duke from GMAC, yeah. making astronomical community change. I love their names, so I always just have to say the full name. <laughs> and um, Shan Duke, I think he spent like at least 15 plus years in prison, 
um, for some of us who may feel like he might be a bit hoteppy or problematic, but I feel like he's connecting to these young boys out here in ways that are like, you know, going into street life or possibly could kill one another. Compared to me, who's like a girl who's probably like, oh, sir, don't talk to me. Get out of my face. So I feel like I understand what Stanley's saying, but I feel like every, like, we have to acknowledge that some people need to receive a message in different ways, but we ultimately do have to push them to where we want them to go, that they just can't uphold the status quo. I think it's people have different entry points and these groups serve for different entry points. No, but I'm, I'm not talking about folks like that where you have some okay. disagreements with. I'm talking about folks who are actively trying to stop things. Okay. Um, like, there, like, there were some groups when the, the I was telling Professor Powers about the bail fight that happened this year, there were some some leaders who were actively trying to get rid of the, the bail law that ended money bail for nonviolent mis crimes. They were trying to end the law because they thought more people need to be in jails and prisons. Like, I'm well, talking about folks who move like that. I think another point where we've seen, I don't want to say divisiveness, but people haven't been 100% aligned was the reaction. Um, some people have said, like, they've been calling for, I've seen leaders call for peaceful protests. I've seen other leaders say, I'm not going to try to police the way people protest. Um, and I wanted to actually talk about that, um, Nick, because the way I see it, like, there's a role, like, there's a reason for riots, uprisings, and rebellions. And historically, they've all played a different role in the movement, uh, no matter what we may think is the way to approach things today, I want to take it back and, and, and ask, what did what has history shown us about the roles of riots and uprisings? And, you know, based on that narrative, what do you personally think is the best way to pursue the fight for Black liberation today? There is an amazing hypocrisy when we celebrate the Boston Tea Party, which was a riot. And then when there's a riot in Minneapolis, all of a sudden it's, it's like the, the right-wing media looks at it as if it's, the zoo has been broken open and all these animals are, are free. You know, there's an incredible hypocrisy in the way that um, politics looks at how riots have played a role in political struggle. So, you know, I just at least acknowledge the hypocrisy there. Second is that there's, there's a difference between the violence that we saw when that cop was kneeling on George Floyd's neck for like almost nine minutes was to me an act of racial violence that fit a pattern of mostly white police officers killing black people um, again and again and again. And what it did is it ignited in those of us of color experiences, no matter what class we are, upper class, middle class, working class, working poor, broke, it didn't matter where you are on the hierarchy. We've all experienced some form of racial shaming or fear or anger. And so seeing that ignited that, those feelings inside of us and so we could all see ourselves in George Floyd. The, the riots that I saw happening, uh, not personally, but through the news on, in the West Broadway Street in New York, where mostly youth uh, were doing what I would say leftist adventurism. In other words, kind of having a carnival of broken windows and smashing you know, the windows of, of the expensive stores. Um, one, to me, honestly, I thought it was kind of juvenile, but that to me was actually a symptom of a kind of other form of class violence, not racial violence, but class violence. And the class violence is this, it's, it's, it's very easy. Don't flash images of a very expensive materialistic life, whether it's through the Kardashians, whether it's through kind of blingy hip hop, don't flash the good life of gold and diamonds and fast cars and fast sex and fast travels and fast lives in the faces of youth and telling them this is the ultimate good life, but then don't give them any way to achieve it. And then when the lights go off and there's no police there, don't be surprised when they smash windows because they're living with social strain. And social strain is a very easy concept in sociology from Robert A. Merton. And you can actually look it up. It's called social strain. And basically it says that every, when a society has an ideal that everyone agrees is a good, a good American life, but you don't have any kind of ladders to reach it, you're gonna create a strain inside of people and they're gonna try to find ways to achieve that good life that everyone agrees on in either criminal ways or other ways. 
um, or they're going to numb themselves with drugs to pretend that they don't feel that need to achieve it. So people are going to deal with that strain in different ways. And so to me, the writing was a symptom of a certain class violence that had existed, you know, even long before and alongside the racial violence of George Floyd being killed by the white cop kneeling on his neck. So we're really dealing with two forms of violence when those riots happen. Um, so, you know, riots also finally get the attention of the authorities in ways that peaceful protests don't. And the kind of sweet spot, and this is the last point, is when the civil rights movement had sit-downs and stopped the business of the city from happening, made sure that the buses didn't run, made sure businesses didn't run, sat on the highways. What they did is they stopped the economy from running. So they made it impossible for people to go about their business until their demands for uh, equality were met. So that's not exactly a riot, but in some ways it's actually even more dangerous to the system than a riot. You can fix the windows, you can replace the merchandise, but if the people decide to paralyze the economy until their, their needs are met, then that's a much more co coordinated and focused kind of attack. Um, hey. But anyway, that's all. No, no, Nick, I, I really appreciate you breaking it down, which leads me to my next question. Why is it that the ruling class has been so successful in maintaining this power structure that benefits, protects, and empowers them, particularly white people and particularly white men? Because uh, like you said, we've tried all these different tactics, um, but it seems like the ruling class still has the power. What is a feedback loop? Like if you, if you have, if, and this goes across class lines or across racial lines, but if you've got people who are, who are born in poor neighborhoods and, you know, they, they're literally born into toxic cauldrons of stress, their parents are yelling about bills, they may be getting hurt, abused, they're out in the streets, people are desperate, and they're going to inferior schools because the schools that rely on tax brackets aren't getting a lot of funding because the taxes aren't that, you know, they're not getting funded with high taxes. So they go to inferior schools, they come out with an inferior education then, then they're, they're eligible only for the, like, the lowest jobs or they get caught up in the criminal justice system. And they come out of this criminal justice factory, which basically produces people who are going to go back into a cycle of poverty. Then they grow up and then their kids are born in the same cycle of poverty and violence. And so you basically lock a whole bunch of people even out of the game, out of being even eligible to reach those higher levels in society. So it's, once they're trapped, you know, there's a whole bunch of people now who you don't have to worry in terms of competition for the higher level, higher level jobs. So that's one thing. It's a filtering process that happens. But then on top of that, when, when people who are locked in a cycle of poverty and violence wind up doing any kind of crime, they're in the head, head, headlines. They're in the news. And that news then reinforces the conservative re rhetoric in line about poor people in general and poor people of color specifically and black poor people even more specifically. And that means everyone else looks at those headlines. They look at that conservative news and they're like, oh, look at those poor people, especially poor people of color, especially black poor people. They're scary. They talk vulgar. They're, they're in drugs. Let's keep them away from us. Let's make sure that the police police the, the lines between us and them. And so they wind up becoming quarantined throughout their whole lives. So it's a cycle of violence, you know, and, um, and, and so that's how the system kind of maintains itself. It actually takes the very consequences of the history of violence and then recycles it within media to justify another round of repression. Stanley, as someone who has been very vocal about coming from some of the low income communities and environments that Professor Powers just talked about, what is your perspective on the ruling class and how it has maintained this power structure for centuries. Well, I think, I mean, first off, plus one to everything Professor Powers said, but also the people closest to the problems are also closest to the solutions. They have the answers. And one of the things you learn in community organizing, like there's, there's multiple roles in community organizing, particularly one is like speaking truth to power and not being afraid to challenge the status quo. But you can't do that unless you are in the community and you're talking to folks and you're not just like telling them what to do, but A, you're helping them see that they have power and B, you're showing them how to then use that power. And the reason the status quo has been able to stay in power because they, is, is because they have effectively made people feel, particularly black people feel, 
that they are powerless, that they can't move anything, that they can't change anything. When in reality, like the, the same folks like who grew up in East New York like me or in Schenectady or in like in St. Louis and Missouri, other parts like that in communities where you've been ignored and communities where you feel the most powerless, you have the most power. You have the most ability to shift things. And it is our responsibility, it is our duty to help people see that power and to share the knowledge that we have with them to help them get to a space where they can see the light that shines in them and push things because nothing changes nothing changes without a demand and then without something to make that demand you're making seem viable elected officials don't just do things from the kindness of their hearts they are forced to or they are encouraged to do so by a large mass of people and any, nothing in this world changes because by nature people don't like drastic change Nothing in this world can change if there are not a coalition of people who are demanding for that change and know what the change needs to be. So the first step is like going to somebody and just like helping them see like you have power, you can make a difference and all of us together can make a difference. Everybody talks about that Selma march. What people don't talk about is the fact that the reason they were marching was they were going to the post office so they can register to vote. And if one person went to the post office to register to vote, that one black person was a threat. So the entire white establishment, which is why they fought so hard to stop them. So they would go together because it's harder to stop all of them from registering to vote and voting than it is to like do one person. And that's where that's coming from. And that's the kind of, they, they did that because they saw their power. And that's the kind of power we need to help people see all around us. Tiffany, what are your thoughts on helping our communities in particular get access to this power? And, you know, can, can it be a balance of power between us and them? Or do you think that we have to sort of grab and take the power from them? Can it be like a combination of both? <laughs> um, I feel like one, I think we have to recognize that the power that exists is not the power that we actually want. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times people, when they talk about like black liberation or black freedom, they kind of equate it to just like white supremacy. So they kind of like, to me, they want like the same rights as like whatever white people. But to me, it's like, so are you saying that you too want to oppress people or you do want to push past that and get even more rights for, you know, equity and access to a lot of the basic, you know, human rights that we think we deserve. And I think a lot of it is just, you know, like what Stanley was saying, it's like education and recognizing our power and I feel like, you know, a lot of us do recognize that power, but it just kind of feel like it's like an onslaught that's coming from every direction. It's police brutality. It's crappy schools. It's even crappy transportation. It's low wages. So it's like, it's a combination of things that I feel like a lot of Black people are fighting for. So they kind of feel like they're downtrodden there. And they, they, they don't have any more to give. But recognizing that, you know, we're in a situation where we have to give more and we have to do more. And a lot of that is coming through education, voting, holding our elected officials accountable, making sure that we're putting people in there that really are gonna, you know, get do what they say they're gonna do. And if not, we have to get them out of office immediately. I feel like, you know, it was more than just voting. We literally have to keep elected officials on, like keep our foot on their necks and continuing to push them. So I feel like, again, it's like an inside out approach and really recognizing our power and everyone's talking about you know reimagining you know a society or reimagining the police i feel like we really need to reimagine a society that we do mm -hmm. want to see and that you know very well does exist and a lot of it's not not reinventing the world like the professor said like the same thing that we're talking about now was been talking about in the, the 60s and the 70s with the panthers and the civil rights so it's just like taking those same principles and making sure they come to fruition right now in 2020 and beyond um, Nick, what is what what do you see foresee the next steps in the fight for black liberation? How what do you foresee that being? The African Latino Indigenous Coalition, both in the United States but in the in the Caribbean, in Central and South America, in Africa, the Mediterranean, also the places of communities of color in Europe, and um, and creating creating a coalition of the diaspora. Everywhere where the bodies of Africans were shipped to through the Middle Passage and you know the blood of Africa had seeped into the continent, that everywhere where there has been diasporic um, bloodshed, 
that you know these are the communities that should should uh, unite on the affirming of black life, the affirming of our skin color, of our hair texture, of our lips, of our bodies, of our religion, our language, whether it's patois, whether it's you know the whole beauty, the whole multi-layered richness of the diaspora, and create kind of a um, uh, an African indigenous Latino coalition. So that's the first step. Um, and then think about how do we start building institutions that help support each other across the lines of religion and language and nationality. And, um, and I think some of it is both political and some of it is cultural. Uh, you know, one of the things is going to the sites where there was auctions, like uh, the African burial ground in New York, and holding ceremonies of reclaiming the land. Uh, maybe not legally yet, maybe not owning the land yet, but start a process of reclaiming um, the diasporic lands of sorrow and, and using those as a place of empowerment. Um, also beginning to, to think of Section 8 housing as basically a trap for our people and saying like, you know, can the middle and upper class dedicate themselves to a new form of black solidarity where we start saying we need to get, we need to rescue people from the hood. We need to kind of have a new exodus where we get out of the hood and start uh, putting people into kind of, you know, like our own like Wakanda houses. And I don't, you know, I don't really mean to be tongue in cheek with that. I mean, like literally recreating a kind of places of healing where people who have had intergenerational trauma can start working that out, where we can start saying some of this toxic masculinity that, you know, the brothers on the corner, because a lot of this is a symptom of fatherlessness, not really knowing how to be a man, trying to get power however you can. But here are other ways of, of feeling uh, masculine power that actually helps keep the community together. It helps, uh, helps us rather than hurts us. So, you know, I think there's a whole kind of, you know, new imagination that has to happen about how we treat each other and how we treat the, the geography around us. And so those are, to me, are just the first steps. Um, and Black Lives Matters uh, finally means uh, turning towards white America and saying, you are actually are becoming the new slaves. You have been abandoned by capitalism to opioid addiction. You're dying of whiteness. They've been tricking you with racism to vote against your interests for almost 100 years now. You've been like told to vote against welfare because black welfare queens are going to take the white man's money. You've been told to vote against you know, free college or gun restrictions because you think the UN is going to fly in and, and, and take away your, your guns. You've been told all this racist nonsense and now you have no Medicare for all, no access really to college, uh, no support. You've been, the factories have shut down. And all this racism has gotten you is addiction and early death. You're dying of your own whiteness. You're dying of racism almost more than we are. So, you know, and like I figure like we should use the authority of our history and say, y'all are the new slaves. We're like, we, we got out of slavery. We're on our way up. We're good. Like it's, we'll, we'll have road bumps and we'll hit some blind alleys. But you know, we're, there's a vision and we're guided by that vision and we're getting freer and freer every generation. You, on the other hand, are actually suffering. You're the new slave. Um, so you may want to join us in making a better country where you won't be addicted and you won't be left behind um, because right now you kind of are lost. So I think there's, there's a whole sense of authority that we have that we haven't even tapped into yet. Uh, and that takes a huge transformation. And Black Lives Matters is the first step in that transformation. But, you know, as Langston Hughes did in this kind of crystal stairwell metaphor, um, there's, there's a lot more steps to go. Stanley, uh, final thoughts, final words on the next steps in the fight for Black liberation. Black liberation is a journey. Um, I don't know if all of, any of us will arrive to the destination in our human forms, at least not those of us on the Zoom, is gonna take a long time. What we should be trying to do is continue to help give people the tools to fight for liberation and fight for their liberation as well. Um, and never stop. You might get tired, you might need to slow down, you might need to take a break, but never stop because we will reach a point where like this is not an issue anymore. And it's gonna take all hands on deck with all different styles, all different approaches and all different people and voices. So it's a journey and let's be prepared to take that journey together. Tiffany, final thoughts, final words on next steps in the, black, in the fight for black liberation. I think next steps is um, engaging in the system, however you see fit, and being more rooted and grounded in your community. 
I think a lot of times people want to attach themselves to national movements, but like the work starts right at home and in your community. So I think being more grounded in your community, I know for myself, like I work for a labor union that focuses on like citywide issues, but just going to the protests, I'm being more intentional about going to protests out here in Southeast Queens, where I live, where I vote. So I think people need to do the work and they could do the work right in their community. Absolutely. And I'll just end by saying this. Every, I echo everything that was already said uh, for the, the panelists. I, I will say the fight for Black liberation is literally next steps. It's, it's within us because we saw how the groundwork was already laid with the, black, with the civil rights movement, the Black power movement. And I feel like this spark that we've seen following George Floyd, who I believe was a martyr, um, we're, we will determine the fight. We will determine the next steps. We will determine how to pass this along to even the generations to come. And as a, what was said, it starts with education, making sure that those within our communities are educated and, and aligned, uh, making sure that we're educated about civic engagement, uh, voting, all politics are local, of course, and just making sure that we don't forget, right? I think that, you know, things may change, the pandemic will come and go, whatever, but we have to understand that our Black lives are always on the line. And if you aren't already fired up, like, I, I honestly don't know what it would take. I think that most of us are already there, and it's just about translating our passion, our anger, and our frustration into tangible forms. And that could be obviously voting at the polls. It could be protesting with your purchases. There's a lot of talk about supporting black owned businesses right now and making sure that we're stimulating dollars within our own community. There's a lot to do. It could be social media activism, which also plays a, a huge role in public awareness. So everyone has a role, everyone has a voice and we have to just make sure that we are accessing that power, our power, and if we work collectively as, you know, collectively towards this one common goal, we will definitely, definitely get there. So I just want to end by saying that um, I want to thank Nick for coming on the show today and, and sharing, um, you know, your inside perspective and just brilliance with us. Thank you for that. I want to thank everyone who is listening or watching via podcast or watching live. Please support Be Her Talk. Um, via our GoFundMe page. I know Stanley just put the link for those in Zoom. So please go to GoFundMe.com slash BeHerTalk. And by supporting us, we will continue to support the issues and the causes that you care about. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Peace. Thank you. Thank you.